You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Portland, Des Moines, Tacoma, Santa Fe, Charlottesville. He's begun to write his memoir now, whenever he's not tending to Rutherford. He thinks how odd it is that Rutherford forgot how to speak English while living in Italy. For Mr. Schmitz, the muteness of his isolation has caused the language to surge out of him. The stories he tells Rutherford grow longer and longer and reflect more of his own experience and his thoughts. He begins to take notes on what he says and incorporates them into his writing. In the silence of their forsaken hamlet, the rhythms and patterns of language swirl around the two men, reverberating off the walls of the house and in Mr. Schmitz's head. At night, when he lies down in the upstairs bedroom, the words rise into a chorus, growing in volume and radiance, drowning out the waking world and carrying him softly to sleep. Baton Rouge, Norfolk, Augusta, Reno, and Tuscaloosa. The long summer is coming to an end, the nights are cooling, and he's just about run out of cities. He paces about the house, talking to himself and rubbing his chin, and he feels as if he's walking along the precipice of the Carso's tall cliffs, bracing against the sea wind that wants to pull him over. One evening, his nerves carry him to the red and yellow checkerboard piazza at the end of town. The high fog shifts the outlines of the rocks and trees until it's impossible to see beginnings and endings, here's and there's. He stands in the shadow of the monastery and feels the cragged mass of the mountains loom behind him with a menacing force. When he turns to look at them, he thinks he can see, over the ridge in the distance, another isolated town, a smudged yellow square at the edge of a broad green valley. There must be plenty of sleepy towns like this in the Carso, each suffering its own battle against the monotonies and mirages of loneliness. Towns, like people, can dream, and this one down in the valley, cut off from the world by mountains on all sides, looks as though it has been in a trance for many years. He thinks of Rutherford, lost in his own reveries. What cities must he be exploring now? What dream people populate them? Carlita, the dream girl herself? It occurs to Mr. Schmitz that he knows what he'd say to Rutherford should his friend wake up again, but he hasn't considered what Rutherford might want to tell him. Focusing on the town deep in the distance of the valley, he tries to listen for his friend's voice. Finally it comes, hoarse but firm in his inner ear. And then Mr. Schmitz's eyes go blank, and a pain shakes his ribs because he realizes what he has to do. Nathaniel Rich is the editor of the Paris Review and the author of San Francisco Noir. His first novel is The Mayor's Tongue. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thanks a lot for having me. Nathaniel, it's really not a surprise that you would end up writing a novel. You grew up in a rather literary household, didn't you? Well, uh, both my parents uh, were involved with writing in one way or another. Uh, my mother worked at, in publishing as an editor, and my father is a newspaper columnist. And They both were passionate about books and films and literature, so I suppose I grew up encouraged to pursue those things, which I feel fortunate about. I think a lot of uh, other writers, when they tell their parents what they they want to do for a living, are often greeted with sort of looks of consternation or, or anger. So I got a little bit of that, but they couldn't really take it too far because they, they had set the bad example to begin with. As you were growing up, you know, uh, households with two artists in them. That's not really a high-income occupation. Did you guys have, were you like 
were your parents struggling riders <laughs> or eating well, a lot of beans or were they doing well when you from your get go? I did eat a lot of beans, but that was a personal choice. Uh, it wasn't thrust upon me. Um, but uh, well, it's true they're not high paying jobs, and uh, they were lucky um, to find an apartment in a kind of out of the way neighborhood in Midtown. Well, it was out of the way at the time, and so it was not an impoverished uh, situation, but I did go to to school with many people who, when I told them where I lived, were, you know, confused and thought that it, it was referred to my, my neighborhood as downtown because they all lived on you know, the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side. But it was, uh, they weren't, neither, both of them had, had salary jobs, so neither, neither one was a, a writer just um, living from book to book, which is that's the real scary thing, or freelancing. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your your home life as a child? Tell me a little bit about the move. Did movies play a big part in your role? World? Yeah, mo- movies were a really important thing for me from a very early age, and I remember watching uh, with my father watching um, Hitchcock movies and James Bond movies, and it was a kind of ritual we had, and, and my brother also. And going to you know great uh, old theaters in in New York when a lot a lot of them still existed and and seeing films from the 30s and 40s and and screwball comedies and and uh, film noir and things like that and so I uh, it was it was uh, most most of my memories of weekends growing up were watching movies. When you were a, a child, did you start? Were you interested in writing even then? I mean, surrounded by it, might have, couldn't have been difficult. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think I I, I, I experimented with different things. Um, I I always did the school paper, and I always I was writing stories a little bit. I, I I really didn't. I when I was growing up, I was really mostly concerned with the performance of the New York Mets, and I don't really remember any kind of burning desire to write at a very early age. Though it's it's one thing that I. I did, among others, but yeah. As I as I grew up, I mean, I think I was I was probably surrounded by a lot of books and 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 movies and theater also. But my main memories are of watching Mets games and going to bed and crying after they lost. Yeah. It strikes me that many kids who are you know, there's a natural inclination to rebel against your parents. And you know, for people, parent people whose parents are kind of working class, or you know, my dad was in insurance. For me, uh, reading and science fiction was a real rebellion. And, and I'm wondering if you, immersed in literature, found yourself in a position where you were maybe tending to rebel against it. Well, I was a pretty, I guess I was pretty much of a mama's boy. I didn't, I never had a really angry rebellious period. I mean, I, I had acts of rebellion here, here and there. But also, it, you know, what my parent, my, my, my mother edited uh, mostly nonfiction books, and my father wrote uh, criticism and then political commentary. So the worlds of, of literature and fiction and films, uh, although they were things that my parents were passionate about, I, I didn't feel like once I started, you know, writing about films or writing fiction, I I, I felt like it was a very distinct world. Um, I mean, I, I could see, uh, you know, I understand the perspective of s- someone saying, "Oh, well, your parents are both sort of work with writing, and you work with writing." But in in my mind, it seemed um, like a different, very different 
type of writing that that I was that I've been doing now. You went to Yale, and, and that's a, a, a that's a highfalutin education, isn't it? <laughs> um, I guess so. I don't know if I would describe. I mean, at Yale, it was a great place to learn how to to binge drink and um, do all kinds, invent strange machines for drinking alcohol. Um, which I, I guess I don't I don't need to go into that now. But uh, no, Yale was a fun place. It was. Um, I suppose it has a highfalutin, uh, you know, quality to it. But my friends were mostly people who, my friends there were mostly people who were doing comedy on campus. Some people who were writing, people who were doing music. It was a lot, a lot of creative energy, and um, I, I enjoyed that a lot. I, I didn't, it, you know, it was serious academic work, but the thing about college is, it's it's actually for me, it was actually a lot of fun and a lot of. Uh, Besides the work, there was also a lot of non-work, determined non-work. Did your parents have any expectations of what you'd do with your college education and how how you would proceed? They probably had fears more than expectations. Um, I don't. I, I I really didn't know what I was going to do, and they they didn't know. And and I feel fortunate that they were uh, supportive in, in that. They there was no pressure to go to law school or. Uh, to to be a doctor, um, and for for a little while, I thought I wanted to work in a, for a general manager in baseball. Uh, then for another, when I graduated, I really didn't know what I was going to do, and I, I ended up applying to a bunch of things and and got a job, a, a really good job at the New York Review of Books as an intern. Which, but that that prospect was very exciting to me. And if it wasn't for that, I I don't know, uh, you know, where I what I would have done necessarily but it, it wasn't you know the writing was important to me but I didn't know exactly how that was going to to play into my professional career because as, as people know writing is very rarely uh, a professional career but you managed to to do this as a critic and as a film critic now it's an interesting idea just even as a concept to be a, a person who writes about film it's the, the old dancing about architecture uh-huh. it is a strange i think it's easier to write about film than it is to write about music which is how i really got started in high school and then in college was writing reviews of, of bands that i liked and concert reviews and and well I, who did you like i have to ask who did i like uh well my very first piece in high school for the newspaper was a, a concert review of sonic youth that was very exciting to me uh, in, in high school, I guess I listened to a lot of. Well, my tastes haven't changed very dramatically, <laughs> embarrassingly since then. But uh, band, you know, rock bands like Sonic Youth, Yola Tango, um, Modest Mouse, Blonde Redhead, a uh, b- bunch of bands that were big when I was in high school, and 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 I continued to write about those types of bands, Radiohead, and so on, um, through college. But I, I I began to grow really frustrated with the cliches of music writing and, and found it extremely difficult to break out of them. And writing about sound is, is very tricky, and it's very tricky to do without falling into the basic, um, you know, really sloppy metaphors about what what some rock band sounds like. So I find, compared to that, I found writing about film easier and writing about books even easier because you're writing about the same medium that you're reading taking it in. As you started to write about film, you ended up writing a book called San Francisco Noir. How did you end up writing this book? 
Um, well, I was I was fast. I, I loved film noir since I when from an early age, and it always struck me how their film noir tended to be shot and set in three different cities: New York, which makes sense because it's the iconic American city, and and the you know, the American city is very much the subject of film noir. L.A., which made sense because it's also iconic, but it's also where Hollywood is. But then San Francisco, and I, I never understood why there were so many of these films shot and set in San Francisco, and what, what was it about the city and its mystique that, that attracted filmmakers to come, come here and make, make all kinds of great movies from um, Maltese Falcon, Sudden Fear. Um, well, there are 40, 40 films in my book. And uh, I, that, was, that was the seed of the project for me. And, and the other, other part of it was... I just really wanted to leave New York for the first time in my life, really, and and move to San Francisco. And I completely fell in love with the city, even from a trip before I, I, I actually moved here. So it was a way for me not only to uh, write about films that I loved and, and try to learn something about them, but a really great way for me to immerse myself in a city and learn more about and I ended up feeling like I was more of an expert on San Francisco than I was ever of New York. There's an interesting passage in your book that, that we'll get back to where you talk about how we sometimes know more about celebrities' lives than our own families. That's uh, <laughs> probably true, yeah. There's also a lot of, of uh, sneaky things about San Francisco that I, I inserted into the book at different places. Uh, but well, let's talk a little bit more about San Francisco Noir because you have some interesting points, and this may be known well known to the noir aficionados. But you divide noir into two periods, from forty one to fifty eight, and then from fifty eight to the present. Tell us what those periods are. Why you made that choice? Is that the default choice for the noir? Well, it's I, I wasn't the one who came up with it. I mean, it, it's it's fairly common. A lot of people would call f- the film noir era for the first period, forty one to fifty eight. That's and I. We'd call it the classic noir era, and the, those are the films that establish the genre, that establish the very specific stylistic aesthetic that these films all share. Sort of sense of impending doom, uh, a character who's down on his luck and makes a bad decision and ends up being drawn into something bigger than than him, and and you know always ending with tragedy, murder, and uh, and doom. And all of things, which very much appealed to me, and uh, and then the neo noir period is basically just the term used to refer to films after fifty eight, which basically in the late fifties the people, the filmmakers and audiences especially started getting really tired of the conventions of noir, and the the there was less interest in and and they were further from the war, which in many ways was the real um, inspiration for a lot of these films. And there was a, a kind of quiet period for a few years. And then films started to appear by filmmakers who had come of age watching film noir and, and made films that were, in many ways, tried to um, take certain elements of noir and heighten them and, and transform them into a film that was contemporary for the 60s or 70s or beyond. And film like The French Connection or Chinatown um, would be good examples. Point Blank is one of my favorites. And these were films that were shot in color instead of black and white usually, but and often often took one element of noir and and kind of magnified it to the point of, uh, sometimes to the point of obsession or, or, or insanity. And so they're usually very similar to noir in one way, but not 
don't share every stylistic quality or or thematic quality because then they would they would be like a film made in 1950. I find it really interesting that you chose uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the the Philip Kaufman version, as one of your films. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I actually had the opportunity to, to to speak with Philip Kaufman, who's you know in San Francisco, and he. Well, it's a, it's a remake of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and he I think he saw it very much as as, as a noir and really a, a kind of um, tribute to to a lot of the films in that genre. And for me, that film is in some ways a you know, perfect example of neo noir because he, you know, the both on the level of cinematography, where uh, in the, in a lot of the old films sort of a very stark use of shadow and chiaroscuro was used to create a sense of uh, you know, paranoia and anxieties, you know, shadows and, and staircases and so on. And he, he achieves a similar effect, but it's shot in color. And the way he does it is he uses, vi- there are very weird colors throughout the movie. There's sort of strange purples and greens and like alien greens. And, and you kind of have the same kind of anxious, queasy sense watching that movie but he's he's come he's he's created that sense through a totally different means, and then the whole idea of the Sutherland character being fearing that everyone's out to get him and 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 becoming paranoid is uh, very much in the tradition of the classic noir character who who feels like he he falls into some kind of larger conspiracy against him, and that that idea of a conspiracy uh, is something that has always fascinated me, and I think is also a big part of the novel in some ways. So as you're out here studying films, um, were you writing any fiction in or even thinking about fiction at that point? Yeah, I I sure was. It was, I mean, I moved out here in 2004, in January 2004, and wrote the noir book that year, basically, or or, yeah, in the year of 2004. And while I was writing that, I, I was doing that during the mornings and at in the afternoons and evenings, very secretly and without telling anybody, I was writing the novel. And it, they were kind of, you know, the two projects in my mind weren't very closely related, although, I mean, now if I, in retrospect, I could see certain parallels maybe, but um, I I felt like I was doing my, sort of the critical work was was sort of like my schoolwork during the day, even though I I loved, I loved the project. And at night, it was more uh, the untethered fiction writing, which um, I felt like allowed allowed me to go into a different place, and and so much of the book was actually written in San Francisco, and I really got the first first real head of steam was in San Francisco. I I'd worked on the novel, uh, or what became the novel, for the you know two or three years before that, but in in not in nearly as concerted a way. Well, when you started writing this novel in those two or three years beforehand, what made you decide to write a novel and? What made you, I mean, as opposed to writing short fiction, say? Right. Well, uh, I I really didn't know what I was doing actually, and 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 I, I began. I had an idea. I had a, a number of ideas, uh, general ideas, sort of themes, and originally, and then I, I I started to think about characters, and that that came next, and and this took a long time for me, and the 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 story came really much later, and. So I really didn't know what I was writing. I, I I think I was I was really in some ways teaching myself to write a novel by trying to do it. But I, I didn't know that it would necessarily take the form of the novel. Um, at one point, I took 
a year off from that writing right before the year before I moved to San Francisco and just tried to write short fiction and discovered that I was not very good at it or, or that it, it, well I, I wrote some things that I'm, I'm proud of but basically what I was doing that year was trying to in retrospect I think I was trying to get uh understand what my writing style could be or what what I felt what kind of register I felt most comfortable writing in with fiction so I wrote over that year uh, when I was trying to write short stories there was a number of very different types of stories and almost different genres of stories and at the end of that year I, I went back and, and looked and thought saw which ones I thought were the most successful and I realized that those were the ones that I should that in that voice I should write the novel but I, I feel much better suited as a writer to the novel than to short fiction. I have great admiration for people who are excellent short story writers, but I don't know that I have the abilities necessarily. Or maybe it's it's as a writer, it's less interesting to me than writing a novel. Well, tell me, what kind of fiction did you read, say, when you were growing up, and what did you enjoy in college? Did those tastes change? Or yeah, I went through I went through several distinct periods from the age of nine to fourteen or fifteen. I read exclusively Stephen King books. I remember coming uh, in my fourth grade after after summer vacation in fourth grade, the teachers asking us to write the names of the books we'd read over the summer. And uh, I still remember the expression on Miss Sobel's face when she looked at my page and said of Little House on the Prairie or Hardy Boys or said The Dead Zone and Tommy Knockers. <laughs> she was appalled. Um, and uh, so I read, I read probably 25 Stephen King books in that period. Then when I was in high school, I, I really... Um, really started to love the uh, Martin Amos, British writers of his generation, uh, Salman Rushdie, Ian McEwan's early story, early books, Julian Barnes is another person. And uh, I read those those writers obsessively for a while. And then in college, I studied uh, literature. I was a literature major. And so I read a lot of European fiction, Russian fiction, early 20th century fiction. What did you read for pleasure after you got out of college? Or did you? Uh, yes, I, I, hopefully I'm always reading. I mean, I, I always hope to find pleasure in, in reading. Uh, I, I read a lot. I continued to read basically the, the, the books that I was reading in, in college or, you know, similar types of books and not, not very much contemporary fiction, um, much more, uh, more fiction by, writers that I, I was passionate about in college, like uh, Flann O'Brien is one person, or um, Itlis Veva, who I did my thesis on, or uh, you know Dostoevsky. Dick, I read a lot of Dickens. Um, very passionate about Dickens and, and so on. So I, it wasn't really until I started working at the Paris Review that I, I've, I, I boned up on contemporary fiction in a very serious, concerted way. Well, how did you get a gig at the Paris Review? That's presumably not too easy. Uh, well, I, no, I was uh, very fortunate. I, I worked at the New York Review of Books as an intern and then an assistant for a year and a half. And I left that there to move to San Francisco to write the noir book. And that was another year and a half. And at the end of that period, as I was becoming very close to running out of money entirely and had and trying to figure out what you know what would be the next job for me, a friend called me and, and mentioned that Philip Gravich had taken over as editor of the Paris Review, which I knew, but then he mentioned that he was looking to hire editors and that maybe I should apply. It would never have occurred to me that I would have been qualified or that uh, you know I would have been chosen. But I was out in San Francisco and I had a lot of time on my hands, so I wrote a letter to Philip and 
he we got in touch and and there was a sort of a long process of correspondence and and discussions and for a while I, it didn't seem like I would be able to move to New York in time to even start the position but finally he asked me to come to New York for an interview and I flew in and and on a red eye and 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 he offered me the job at the end of the interview and so I, I felt you know it's been very exciting because it he I was the first person he hired after taking over as the as the editor of the Paris Review and I think he wanted someone who he liked who was young and uh passionate about fiction and and would be excited to be part of, of a magazine that, although it has extremely storied, uh, wonderful tradition, at the same time when Philip took over, it felt very much like a startup as well because the whole staff was new. We moved offices from George Plimpton's house, his basement on the Upper East Side, to a, a loft in Tribeca, and there was very much a, a sense of, of a new enterprise. So, uh, which was really exciting to me at the time, and and I think he wanted probably a, a younger person to be, to help him and be part of that. As you're working at the Paris Review, you were, were you working on this novel? Yeah, I was. I was. I was very well into. Uh, at that point, I was. Um, the noir book was was out, and I was just working on the novel and doing freelance pieces, and I was probably two thirds or three quarters of the way through writing it, at that. Point when I moved back, which was June of '05, I think. Now, as I understand it, you told nobody that you were writing this novel. There's a kind of a writers are a superstitious lot, I think. And I was wondering, was there an element of superstition in uh, that? Mostly, probably fear and insecurity, and some some superstition. Uh, you know, like I said, I really didn't know what it was for a while, and I didn't know if it was going to work, if it was going to come together, and 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 because I and I so I didn't want to talk about it to anybody, and I didn't want to be um, you know the guy who goes around town talking about his book and then it never comes out and it's or it's a disaster one you know one thing or another. So it it took me a while to feel comfortable even thinking that it was novel and then showing it to people. And uh, I, I guess you know basic basic insecurities and fears of it being terrible and totally crazy. That was another thing I thought maybe because I wasn't talking about it that. It was just getting crazier. The book itself was getting crazier and crazier and crazier and going in some strange part of my mind because it wasn't being exposed to an outside reader who might uh, inject some kind of logicality to it. Uh, so, And it turned out it was crazy, and I, I spent a long time sort of t- reducing the craziness factor to a more manageable uh, manageable amount. Um, but it, I, I did, over a year or two years, I, I did a lot of editing work to, to really make get uh, into a cohesive, structured uh, novel. So you were doing this while you were an editor at uh, Paris Review. Uh, there must have been some feedback between the two, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think, well, it, I, really, I mean, working at the Paris Review, I, I felt, I definitely feel like I, I improved as an editor and it helped edit my own fiction. And, it, you know, it's just been very humbling and inspiring to be able, as an editor, to work with such Great writers as we're able to, as I'm able to do in this in this job, and both both new young writers that are are coming up, who are you know my age or younger or just a, a little older, and to work with them on stories, and then to work with, you know, more legend legendary figures uh, who we interview for the magazine. So someone like a Stephen King who I was able to interview for the magazine, or uh, Ishiguro or Kenzaburo Oi or Orhan Pamuk, people like that. Um, just to see how they go about their work and how they talk about their work and and 
see how they conduct themselves was, has been extremely uh, helpful and, and educational for me as a, as a young writer. As an interviewer, I'm guessing, and a writer interviewing, interviewing writers, uh, it, it's kind of like getting a one-on-one class, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's and that's the idea of the the Paris Review interviews from the, from the beginning was to, well, the real idea was to get famous writers to contribute pieces to the magazine and not pay them. And when <laughs> from very early, you know, from the first issue, they they had the fantastic idea that well, you know, we might not get Ian Forster to write us a short story, but Maybe he'll sit down and and agree to be interviewed by us, and and then we, you know the, through the editing process they really the writer really revises and edits it a lot. So by the end we have a real kind of declaration or or, or authoritative statement by the writer about their own work. And and one of the things that makes them so fascinating, I think, especially to writers or aspiring writers, is the discussion of the real nitty gritty of writing, the craft. And the, you know in every Paris Review interview we ask, when do you write? Where do you write? You know, how much do you write every day? What's your, you know, what kind of pencils do you use? That that level of thing, which maybe sounds tedious to someone who's not a writer, but but to a young writer who's just you know beginning and wants to know how it's done, it's it's really demystifying and and sort of deglamorizing in an extremely helpful way and use, useful way. The process questions we call them in the yeah the process <laughs> yeah no that's 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 those are the money questions the process questions. Well, um, tell us a little bit about your process. Well, it it uh, so far it's it's changed uh, based on on what what kind of jobs I've had. But when I've been working at when I was working at the New York Review and and now I I do most of my writing at night and on the weekends, especially on the weekends. When I lived in San Francisco, although I felt I was wasting my time or I, I was taking I was too distracted, just enjoying the city and and, and hanging out. In retrospect, it's by far. Uh, the most productive period of my life because I wrote almost two books at the time. And, and and basically what I would do then was just wake up 9 or 10 in the morning, write, try to write 300 words on the noir book, make lunch and write, and then try to write 1,000 words on the novel over the course of the day. Now, do you write on a computer or do you write by hand? I write on a computer and then I print things out and, and edit by hand and, and edit obsessively. When you're editing yourself, is with the novel you didn't have any. You had no first readers. I was I was the first through twelfth reader. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> someone else got involved around fifteenth read or something. Well, let let's talk a little bit about your novel. It's really a fascinating book. It, it's so much, not surprisingly, quite a bit about writing and writers. And, and to me, what I found most interesting. Is that it's about states of consciousness? I think the the the, the dreaming, uh, the fictional dream that that we all experience when we're reading, and the how that blurs between uh, our lives. No, oh, I think that's a fascinating point. I hadn't I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but but you're right. It's it's I, what I really I wanted to evoke was that sense of of being when you're at at the edge of. Uh, this doesn't sound too cliched, but you know, the edge of reality and dreams, and 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 I wanted it to be a, I wanted it to be a very realistic world, and yet to have there be um, infiltrations of a, of a fantasy world or of a of a dream world. Really, I wouldn't say maybe necessarily say fantasy, but a kind of dream consciousness too. And I think for me that that's something that it's a kind of way that you know people 
it's not it's not only about when people fall asleep and, and or fantasize or have dreams, but it's also when I think people are intimate with each other, or when people are passionate about something they're reading or doing, or when people are trying to really you know communicate with one another in a very deep way. You your sense of the world shifts in in certain imperceptible ways, and and I was trying to capture that kind of shifting, uh, shifting sense there. The stories we tell ourselves about our lives and the stories we tell others about our lives, and we know the difference between those two stories. Yes, well, you yes, you put it much better. <laughs> that's that's true. That's that's a good way to put it. Well, there's two stories in this book, and they're both very interesting. And from a a perspective of a first novel, they're just absolutely fascinating. The first story that we encounter is Eugene. He's just escaped from college, and he's kind of drifting and and. But he makes an interesting choice to tell his father one thing, and yet he does something rather different, doesn't he? Yeah, well, he, he's graduated from school, and he's from New York, and he's feeling uh, he has this real need for escape, as he says he put it, and for adventure. But he's, he's a bit too timid to do anything about it. So his, his small rebellion is to move from his apartment in his parents, his father's house in, in Manhattan, move to the far at northern edge of Manhattan is as far as he can go, right at, at the border of the city for him. And he takes a job at a moving company and he basically loses touch with his friends and his father in, in an effort to create a new world for himself that's totally uh, different from what he knew. And he makes an effort to put himself outside of his comfort zone and, and he does and then strange things start to happen to him. The first strange thing that happens to him is he meets a man named Alvaro who speaks an incomprehensible dialect. There's just so many layers of language in this book and translation and perception of language. I was fascinated by just the Chibeno actually does exist. As I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, how much of this exists? So (laughs) It's one of those books where I kept looking stuff up to see what was real and what wasn't. Yeah, there there is a dialect called Sabeño, and it's in, spoken in, in a remote part of the Dominican Republic, but it's not nearly as uh, unintelligible as it is in, in, in my books. I took some liberties. Uh, the relationship with Alvaro and Eugene, which which is what starts the book, is, is very important for me from the beginning, and it, it felt like it really established a lot of the main themes and ideas that the book was about and the, and the characters. And... That's one of the very few elements that I can trace to some kind of autobiographical moment in my own life where I was living in Italy one summer and I was working as an intern at a publishing company during college and I had no place to live. And and the first day I met a young man who we seemed to have the same similar interest in in fiction and and he was an editor there, a young editor there. And I explained my housing situation. He offered uh, his place for me to stay in. And so I didn't really know what that meant, but I, I took him up on it, and I, I, I moved in, and he turned out to be totally innocent, just a really nice, generous guy, and I lived on a, I slept on a fold-out chair, and he and I, he was trying to learn English, and I, that was really what he wanted me there for, he wanted to learn English, and I was trying to improve my Italian. So we would speak in a very, he would speak a very bad English and refuse to speak in Italian, and I would mostly refuse to speak in English or I would match his English with my own bad English so that he could understand it, and or try to speak in my pidgin Italian. So neither of us were really making any sense at all, but we we had such a great time together, and we laughed, and we always were making jokes, but 
probably to a third party, it would be like two people speaking gibberish. So that that was the seed of the idea for the relationship between Eugene and Alvaro, where they're speaking totally different and incomprehensible languages from each other, but somehow they feel that they're communicating on a deeper level and understanding each other. And whether they are or not is, you know, is, is left to, uh, to suspect. It was June when Eugene Brentani took the job at Aronson and Son Moving Company and subleased an apartment in Inwood from a man on his crew named Alvaro. Like many of the men who worked at Aronson and Son, Alvaro had recently emigrated from the Dominican Republic. Unlike the others, however, Alvaro was from the Cibao Valley, a small rural region in the northern part of the country. Separated from the rest of the island by the Cordillera Septentrional mountain range, the isolated farming communities of the Cibao Valley had developed their own dialect. This dialect, Sibania, was virtually incomprehensible to natives of the other Spanish-speaking countries in the Caribbean. Cubans thought that it sounded excessively affricative, like Catalan. Puerto Ricans found it soft and melodious, like Portuguese. Even the other Dominicans on the moving crew were baffled by Alvaro's speech. To Eugene, it sounded like Alvaro was speaking with a mouthful of porridge. Alvaro's attempts to learn English were, despite his most strenuous efforts, pitiful, but he was able to make himself understood in other ways. Since words failed him, he communicated through vivid intonation, forceful hand gestures, and dynamic facial expressions made with contortions of his rubbery face, the muscles of which were flexible to an uncanny degree. An arched lip or a wiggled ear was a disquisition in itself, conveying meaning far more articulate than, say, one of Eugene's father's monosyllabic lectures. After several weeks, it no longer mattered that Alvaro couldn't speak a word of English. Eugene believed that he could understand him just fine. Alvaro asked Eugene to translate something, and it, it's a novel. And, and Eugene, what Eugene translates is this really wonderful story, and this is the first of many stories within stories, stories told by stories. It, this book is like a one of those, uh, it's almost like a, a the literary version of a pop-up book. Uh-huh. <laughs> you open up the pages, and there's 10 other stories that pop up at various different levels. What made you decide to, to take that tack as you were trying to tell the story? Well, I... My, at a certain phase, it, it was very chaotic, and the stories were just coming out of nowhere and right and left and diverging and, and so on. And and then I, I, I cut them away and cut them away, and, and it reduced it to what I felt were the things that were really essential for this the book. And and so I think there there is a, a continuity, and, and I think the stories function almost as metaphors often in the book for what's happening between the characters. Um, with Alvaro and Eugene, Alvaro gives Eugene a manuscript written in this dialect. Eugene is, he asks Eugene to translate it. Um, and Eugene, in translating it, is forced to imagine what a autobiographical fiction by his friend might be about. And it's, it's, it's in the translation process, it's a way for him not only to communicate for Alvaro, but then also to Al- with Alvaro, but also a way to in a sense, write about his own life. And, and, sh- and th- there are certain parallels between Alvaro's story and Eugene's story. And throughout the book, when, when there are little stories within stories, they're often in places where, or they're, they're always in places where there's an interaction between two characters and they reach a certain impasse because they're not, language fails them after a certain point. And it's really through telling a story that they're able to understand better what, what has brought them together or, or get through that impasse. You know, the phrase you just said, I think we, we need to get a T-shirt that says that language fails them <laughs> because I think that's one of the themes of this book. It's Yeah, it's for me, it's probably the central theme of the book is the, 
you know, deep fail the the frailties and failures of of language and and the difficulty of communicating with another person, and you know, which is something I constantly dealing with in my own conversations in being being inarticulate and so on. But the 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 frustrations of of language and and yet the and the imperfections and yet the deep human desire to reach out to someone and and really communicate with them in an intimate way and i think throughout the book there are situations or relationships where two two people want to really want to you know reach a serious level of understanding within with one another and are are thwarted and yet yet still have this desire so it's there's something tragic about it but there's also something optimistic i think about the you know human will and and what what we try to use language to do well the the eugene storyline is something that we might expect from a young man who's an editor of Paris Review. The the Rutherford and Schmitz, however, this is a very different storyline and not what we'd expect. Yeah, that was on purpose. <laughs> and it's fun. Yeah, I like it. yeah. well, I, I think the two stories, uh, you know, I don't want to analyze my own book too much, but I think the two stories really uh, start from very different places and they kind of cross at a certain point and, and yet... There's my hope was that there was a resonance between these two stories all along, and that they the the main characters in each story go through similar crises, and they face similar problems, and I think come to different solutions, and and have different ways of 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 dealing with those problems. But I yeah, it was important to me. I, you know, I was very aware when I was writing the book, and maybe as a literature student of of certain tropes and and. And cliches of, of you know first novel by a young guy, especially one living in New York or a place like that, and and I realized at a certain point I could not escape certain basic things like one of the protagonists being a young man in New York or at least starting there, and and so I, but it was important to me to not reduce it to something like that, but to include, but to, to have the story be much bigger than that, and and the Mr. Schmitz and Rutherford strand is very much a part of that, and I think it balances out that element, um, hopefully in a complimentary way. One thing that strikes me about this whole book is there's this uh, a beautiful kind of uh, emotional feel all the way through. It's not overstated. I, I guess it's a, a wistfulness, a, a kind of joy, but a little bit of sadness uh, at the invented landscapes that, that we're left with as, as we experience life. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, there's, there's, I think a lot of, uh, on Eugene's part especially, there's a lot of youthful energy and and exuberance, and at the same time, there are frustrations and 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 problems along the way that that reduce that element too. And and I think the same with the old old men's story. There's, you have the sort of sadnesses and and uh, some tragedies of of old age, and yet there's also an excitement. Uh, about there's a kind of a youthful excitement to them too, so I, I felt like there should be a balance, and I wanted to to go for a kind of honest, you know, honestly complex emotional uh, resonance, and 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 not reduce it to a kind of fairy tale or a tragedy. Um, but I, I wanted to, you know, I think as much as there are some fantastical elements of the novel, I felt like the the characters are for me felt deep you know i tried to make them as deeply honest as possible and real and so that although the landscape um becomes more surreal in some ways by contrast the characters become more real 
They, so. they, they really do seem like people you might meet or know and, and almost like old friends that, that worn, worn leather shoes or something that you, somebody you know so well that you can, but, uh, one thing that, that, uh, of course that I really liked about this book was all the, the metafictional elements immediately your, you introduce us to a writer, Constance Eakins. And so the first thing I'm doing is trying to look up and find out who Constance Eakins is. Okay, well, he's fictional. <laughs> I get that pretty quickly. Um, but you have a lot of fun w- w- with Eakins. And, and there's even an element of uh, 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 academic satire. There, your character, Eugene, has written a college paper about Eakins, and he gets a B. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because he takes on more than he can chew. Because Eakins is a, just a monstrous, terrifying figure, and and uh, he's not really any he's not really a, modeled after any single writer, but something like a grotesque amalgamation of every great you know writer of of the last century. Something like a Hemingway plus Faulkner plus J D. Salinger plus Nabokov or anyone else he can name. And I think he does. I def he has characteristics of all of these writers. He's reclusive he's monomaniacal he's a belligerent um deeply uh, perverse a criminal maybe a murderer we don't know and and i felt like for the role he plays in the story uh, he has to kind of haunt the rest of the story and yet can't totally be present at least not until the end and uh he's somewhat something like of an oz oz like character for me I, I like that Oz. That's that's a really good way. Yeah, he's the wizard behind the curtain, and, and not only uh, is he based, I'm guessing, on uh, writers, but also on film directors. I'm well, thinking of one very, one particularly very student. Yeah, Orson Welles is there. Maybe uh-huh. you're thinking of someone. Well, else. I was thinking of Werner Herzog. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm obsessed with Herzog. So yes, he's he's yes, definitely there too. I mean, I think I remember actually watching. Uh, Les Blank's uh, Burden of Dreams, San Francisco filmmaker, uh, while I was writing the book at one point and seeing Herzog's monologue about the jungle. Uh, and, oh, and man. Just, <laughs> terrifying. And he, he just gives this incredible... Mo- I urge anybody to rent that film. Um, and it's, it's about the making of, of a Herzog film. And, and Fitzcarraldo. Just, Fitzcarraldo, yeah. yeah. They're, they're stuck in the jungle and, and they, everything on the set goes wrong. And Herzog is acting like a maniac, and Klaus Kinski, the actor, is acting like a maniac criminal. And uh, he delivers this monologue about being in the jungle and the raw, violent force of nature. And it's very negative and dark and hilarious, and and it's totally an Eakins-like uh, moment. Or I tried something I tried to to impart into Eakins. Eakins himself lives in in something like an equivalent of the of the jungle um but you know at a remove from society he's, he's sort of outside the natural world and yet has all the violence of the natural world in him we we also meet uh, uh, an interesting family uh, Abe Chisholm and he's doing Eakin's biographer and he ha- has a daughter who has a variety of names yes well she's she, uh, everyone has a different name for her, and they're, they're all generally versions of Allison or Alice, or she's also Sonia and so on. And and that, you know, that that was uh, important to me that she she had that quality that she's she's sort of someone else to everybody who looks at her. And although she's a very I think strong character in her own right, she's often being um, sort of misperceived or or her identity shifts depending on who's. Uh, 
you know, who sees her, and and uh, and then the biographer himself is is uh, for me it was something like a Dickensian figure of this guy who's been writing a biography for ages and ages and ages of this writer, and yet hasn't come to a conclusion to an ending. Claims to correspond with Constance Eakins, even though Eakins is presumed dead, and it's unclear to what degree he's either um, just a slow worker or completely senile and, and batty. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, letters in this in this novel that that turn out to be works of fiction, or maybe works of fiction or imitations of fiction. I'm wondering what your experience is with correspondence. As a, did you were you a pro- prolific letter writer? Um, I love receiving letters, and I, I like writing letters. I I wish I I have written and received more. Um, but uh, letters, for me, it, it was important because it was a, it was a way to demonstrate, you know, through the medium, through through writing, certain changes that were going on in the characters, and you get a first person perspective, uh, which uh, you don't, you know, the book is otherwise written in the third person. So they also seem to punctuate. The, the action in, in, in an interesting way to me. And, uh, and they do play a very significant uh, role in the, in the, in the old men uh, sections uh, because once Rutherford is sent to Italy, their only, his only mode of communication with Mr. Schmidt is through the letters. So t- to dramatize the changes that Rutherford undergoes while he's in Italy, it has had to be done through, through writing and through these letters. Let's talk a little bit about Italy. When did you go there? Why did you go there? And what happened to you when you were there? I don't know. Something irrevocable <laughs> and strange. Uh, I went. I became obsessed with Italy at the beginning of college, and I, I started taking Italian then. And I went every summer uh, in college, and I think I just became fascinated with the films, the culture, the, the literature, and I ended up writing my senior thesis on the Italian writer Italo Svevo, who was from uh, Trieste, and I went to Trieste, and and really more than anything, that trip was the inspiration for the the whole book, and that was the my last summer of college, and I spent two weeks there in complete isolation. That was probably another thing. I, it was the first time I'd really been isolated, uh, and and had no communication with anyone, and especially and not in English. So I think I went a little crazy myself and began talking to myself but it fascinated me because it's 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 so outside of what we know as Italy and you know our view or you know my view at least of as an American of Italy is this kind of tourist paradise and you know bella vita and good life and so on and they in in Trieste most Italians don't even know that it's part of Italy when I was there I remember there was a poll that said 60 percent of Italians didn't think it was part of Italy and it hadn't been until the 50s and it for a while was an independent state and over um, the centuries it's been an important port but for different empires from the Romans through the Byzantine Empire through the Austro-Hungarians so it's it has this very strange identity that's between the east and the west and between Italy and Germany and Slovenia and they speak a dialect that nobody else in Italy can understand and it has a, and because it's it's no longer an important port, uh, it's it has a kind of faded faded beauty to it, and and it's kind of fallen out of you know it's like an old like woman's hat you find in an attic somewhere. No one really uh, knows about it, or it's sort of beautiful, but no one wants to actually put it on their head. Uh, so it's it's it was a very strange place, and and 
It's, but it's also that you know where James Joyce wrote m- much of his books and where Sveva lived, and the the mix of different languages and different cultures, and my failure to communicate with anybody there, I think were all all important for the writing of the book. Let's talk a little bit about the the writers who haunt this book, the the real writers, not not the the, the invented writers. We'll, we can get, we'll get to them next. <laughs> um, there's such a a variety of delightful writers, and, and you mentioned Italo Svevo, who's one of my favorites, and he's uh, I think underappreciated in America. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's a he's a fascinating writer. He wrote a, a masterpiece called uh, it's translated as Zeno's Conscience, and published in the 20s and and his story was that he wrote two novels as a young man he changed his real name was Ettore Schmitz he changed his name to Italo Svevo which means basically Italian Swabian and and his family was both Italian and Swabian from Germany so he he spoke the dialect had a very weak command of Italian really which is one of the reasons why I first was attracted to him because he he wrote a very simple Italian because it wasn't really his language so I could read it much much more easily as as a as a new Italian speaker but he wrote two novels as a young man. They, nothing really happened with him. No one paid attention. He gave up. He married a very wealthy uh, heiress of a uh, painting company, uh, or shipping, paint shipping company, and went into that trade. And at one point, when in his 50s, late 50s, he, the business took him to, he had to do, take regular trips to England. So he had to hire a, a British teacher, uh, someone to teach him. English and and he hired a young man from the Berlitz Academy, local Berlitz Academy, and they were doing the lessons and and the young writer, the young teacher, found out that Svevo had written these novels as a young man and and encouraged him to write more and it, and Svevo was was you know very flattered and and it turned out that this young English teacher was James Joyce and James Joyce's uh, book then came out, uh, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. And Svevo was emboldened to write his third novel, which after 45 years of, of not writing, and he wrote this masterpiece that, to me, is, is the Italian masterpiece of the 20th century. It's very much about uh, life in a, in a cosmopolitan city. It's about, it starts with a hilarious just riff on trying to quit smoking, which I think is the best thing that's ever been written about smoking addiction. And it's... In some ways, it's it's a lot about the way the world changed after World War One. Although that never really he never really talks about that. It it's, it seeps in through the through the sort of corners through the margins, and and I and you sort of don't really get that until the end. But it's basically about being uprooted in cosmopolitan life and being confused, and it's deeply funny and and sort of strange, and it has an interesting structure, and uh, you know compulsively readable, and, and I recommend it to everyone. Well, uh, I would highly agree. <laughs> and, and now, there's some other writers that, that I think play a part in here. Eugenio Montale? Montale is a, a Trieste writer, and uh, he's an Italian uh, critic. And he, um, I suppose Eugene might be from his name. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I, I now forget some degree. Mr. Schmitz is, is named after Svevo, is a, a real name, which was a Tori Schmitz. And. Uh, Montale is a writer I admire a lot and wrote about Svevo and, and was, I think, one of Svevo's big champions um, among the Italian critics. And, and, of course, we have Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway is in there, uh, I think, through the Eakins character. And it's less Hemingway's writing and it's more his persona. I think, right. That kind of, and, you know, Norman Mailer, that kind of tough, macho 
uh, writer persona that is somewhat, uh, you know, it's so it's pretty comical. I think now to to people, to to readers because it it feels like it really belongs to another era at this point. But but Eakins himself uh, belonged to that era, so I thought it was important that he he had all the those qualities. Uh, we have also a riff on Poe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, um, a, a Mask of the Red Death scene. If I, <laughs> if it's I seem to probably remember. true. I, I, I Poe is Poe is a big influence for me as well, and and uh, I think you know what's great about Poe and what's great about a horror, you know, the great horror writers, and I think Stephen King has this too. Is they have a terrific sense of humor, and and for me, you know, horror and comedy. Are basically two sides of the same coin, and I think you know both both require some element of of shock and surprise, and either the person either responds by laughing because they're so horrified, or they are so surprised, or they're terrified. And I think uh, that that kind of pivot is very important to, especially the character of Eakins, who is sort of a comical figure but also horrifying. And, and Eugene responds to those qualities of him, to, but in both ways. We've talked a little bit about the elements of the fantastic in this book, and I think you do quite a, a wonderful job of creating gritty, everyday, realistic characters and then having these things slip into their lives just by virtue of their perceptions that are that are fantastic and strange. But you have a, a there's a word, sencute, sencute. Oh yeah, the cinch. Yeah, I don't really know how to pronounce the cinch. It's it's a Triestine. It's a word from Triestine dialect, which sounds nothing like Italian, by the way, and it's full of letters that don't even appear in the Italian language, um, like J, for instance, and uh, in combinations of letters. It's that is the name of a kind of demon that that lives on in the in the mountainside in this very strange region outside of Trieste in the hills. That's really on the border of Slovenia. And there, it is such a. Th- it's sort of like Sibenio in this. There is such a thing. There is such a belief in this kind of demon. Um, but I, I think I probably took some liberties with with the actual folklore and, and in the book. But in the in the in the novel, um, the the children in Trieste are told by their parents that there are these devils up, little devil children up in the in the hills, and that if you know they don't go to bed or if they go outside during the windy season, they'll be uh, taken by these these demons and. And so, that, that it ends up becoming significant uh, in different ways in the book. But I don't want to give away too much. Uh, nor do I. Now, one of the you create this region, and I and I've actually I looked looked uh, looked it up. It, it really is a region. You call it the Carso. I think uh, from that's the, I believe the from the Italian approach. It's right at the border of it. it Italy and, and Slovenia, right? And, and I think from coming from Slovenia, it's the cross. Yeah, and and it's it's a kind of, for me, it was a very mythical landscape because everything that was fascinating to me about Trieste, the kind of mix of cultures and languages and identity, is kind of magnified in the mountains because once you get up there, you don't really know where the border is, and you don't. It's it's a real borderland, and and I felt like for me, it was a real border between. Uh, not just between Italy and Slovenia, and to some extent Austria, but also um, between sort of re- reality and a kind of fictional world. And uh, I went I went there when I was in Trieste once, and and there are lots of little towns, and the signs are, every sign is in a different language, and there are lots of little vineyards and and farms up there, um, 
and a, a folklore and kind of local ritual. And the, the, the places are very cut off from the rest of Italy and from the, the rest of the world, really. And it's the kind of place that you, you don't, you know, there aren't really guidebooks about it. And, and the idea of a part of Italy, this corner of Italy, that was so removed from the, you know, Rome or, or our, the Italy of our American's imagination was fascinating to me. And it seemed like the kind of place where anything could happen. And you actually make a reference, you talk in there about there being places in this world right in the middle of where we think we know that we actually don't know. And I think it's a really fascinating observation. Yeah, well, that was one of the, actually, that 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 idea was, was really one of the first ideas that I had when I was working on the book. I, I, I really, there was sort of a, a group of ideas that kind of jigsawed together, and one was the idea of places that, no one has ever been to just because we assume that people have been there, you know, and there, there are places like that in the world. I mean, there aren't many, but, uh, you know, there are, I, I mean, I, I remember a friend, I saw a friend uh, recently who over the summer worked for some kind of geological expedition in northern Canada. They were a student in Victoria, the university, and he went up with his professor in the summer and they would be airlifted by helicopter into the into the mountains up there. And wherever they were dropped down to do research on whatever they were researching, local uh, species and so on, they were the first, they were certain they were the first humans who had ever been in that land. And and it's not, you know, no one would ever really think of wandering in that area in northern Canada, but it, it's so, there are places like that that still have a, a kind of untouched quality. And, and that was an idea that, that was really uh, fascinating with me and, and seemed to resonate with a lot of the other ideas in the book. And you have a, a lot of fun, and it's a difficult task when you're a writer creating a fictional writer. Yeah, I felt I felt you know I, I I'm very myself um, when I'm reading other books when there are writer characters I, I'm always wincing a little bit you know because uh, there's something you know you read a book you want to for me you want it to be kind of escaping from world and writers writing about writers you can get in a lot of traps that way but so I felt I, I did want to I did need to have this character so I, I felt I had to make him as crazy and, and maniacal and strange as possible I, I couldn't have just a you know I couldn't do what what Philip you know Philip Roth does so wonderfully was to have a kind of authorial stand-in you know writer writing about a writer who's like the writer I, I if I, I knew I couldn't I wasn't up to that so I needed uh I needed this this character to be totally terrifying. One of the things that that interests me is the many ways that you kind of weave in very subtly um, ideas that come from the the edges of the fantastic. There's a there's a theme of consumption in here of just excessive consumption and eating, and that's uh, often a, a an aspect of of fairy lore that you'll go and if you eat the fairy cake, mm-hmm. that's it. You're you're out of this time stream. Uh, yeah, that's. A, I mean, it's a great observation. It's definitely something I I thought a lot about. And there's a kind of, it's eating as a metaphor, as a kind of metaphor for experience, gaining experience through eating and devouring. And there's a there's a real hunger that a lot of the characters have. Eakins is one of them, but I think Eugene has it too, and and Rutherford has it, um, and I think Mr. Schmidt sort of develops it. And it, for me, it's really about a hunger for life and a hunger for experience and that that's at the heart of the motivations of of a number of characters maybe you could say all of the characters in the book is that they they really want to 
live and that this is a kind of sensual, uh, physical manifestation of that, just uh, excessive eating. And Eakins eats like a, a real devil. <laughs> also, there's a, an element of, from one of my favorite myths, um, uh, the, where, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In lots of Blessed Virgin Mary apparitions and presentations, um, people will be able to run faster than they should be able to. And, and there's a scene like that. I'm wondering, did you did you think about any of the, the many Blessed Virgin Mary apparitions in places in Italy? Well, there, not specifically, but I mean, there there is... You know, major uh, you know religious religious life in Italy is is very strong, and 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 religious um, myth or folklore, especially in in certain regions, are really alive today as as uh, as they were in the medieval ages. And I think there, I had that in mind a little bit when I was writing about rural parts of Italy, um, and and for me, a lot of of that those qualities are for me are things that you encounter when you leave the city and 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 a lot of uh you know when 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 Eugene leaves from New York but also leaves from Trieste and goes up into the Carso I think you leave the kind of rational uh almost you know business world of a city cosmopolitan world and you go into the unknown and part of the unknown is myth and a kind of spiritual uh ether and 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 I think that's part of it though it's not not specifically religious but there I think there's a kind of uh, spiritual quality there. I want to return to this kind of something I talked about earlier, the, the states of consciousness. You have so many uh, different ways of, of talking about that. Um, uh, Rutherford, I think it's Rutherford, develops a, a nausea of the brain. Uh, yes. Sartre. <laughs> All I could think of that by, by my, one of my favorite <laughs> books I read in college was, not, uh, was uh, Sartre's Nausea. Well, part of... Yeah, and part of what's happening in that scene is he's he's losing his capabilities to speak English very well. And so nausea, it's a kind of bad translation of what the Italian might be, of kind of a headache. Um, and uh, he, uh, I suppose, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say I was trying to, <laughs> to evoke Sartre, but uh, um, there, there are certainly many nauseas of, of brains and, and other organs throughout the, the book, probably. And the loss of language, too, aphasia. You say, and also one of my favorite lines, sleeplessness is a fine quality to possess. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, in the fictional world, no one ever sleeps. They're always doing stuff. So uh, I like the idea of of characters sort of taking that for granted or not taking that for granted and, and the damaging qualities of sleep. Because I mean, this, this is connected to the eating where it's, you know, when you're sleeping, you're not living. You're not experiencing life. You're not you know, devouring life. And so sleep, sleep, uh, being sleepy is, is just the worst because you're, you're just stuck in one place and you can't do anything. Are you working on a new book? Um, I am. And I've, uh, tentatively, and hopefully it won't take, you know, five or six or seven years like this one. Um, but, uh, all I can say, I've already spoken much more about it than I ever did about the first book, but uh, it has a working title of Future World, which is one word, and it also starts in a city in New York and goes out into a, a countryside, And but it's focused on, on two characters primarily. And I think in, in some ways it's 
uh, and then there's an apocalyptic crazy event also. So there, there's some similarities, but in some ways it's sort of, a, in my mind, it's, it's a more, um, the dimensions aren't quite as large as in, in the mayor's tongue. It, is it science fiction? It sounds like it is. I, I mean, don't know. I, I guess I don't know how you, yeah. Well, I don't know how you, it's hard to define. I guess I don't think of it in terms of, of genre like that, but mm-hmm. I, it's, it's unlike, it's not like a, a Michael Bay movie, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not about the, it, it's sort of, I think a better, you know, what I have more in mind is something like, a, uh, you know, what Dondolo did in White Noise where there's this crazy apocalyptic event, but it's not the main event, it, you know, it, it's not, the White Noise itself is not the main, uh, the, the story is really about the characters and, and, and for this story, the set, there's a drama, but there's a conflict, it's a crisis between the characters that they have to deal with, to put it in the most prosaic terms. And, and the other stuff is sort of outside of it. It shapes what they do, but it's it's not um, it's like not about a meteor crashing to Earth, you know, something like that. Well, uh, it sounds like there'll be some more delightful elements of the fantastic. Uh, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's important for me never, it's important, especially with Mare's Tongue, I didn't want it to be, you know, it's not a fantasy book, it's no. not a, a fan, but there are some fantastic elements, and it's important to me that it's it's a very gradual um, shift and that you're never presented with some kind of hobgoblin jumping out from behind a wood, you know, but it's um, a kind of a, a, a gradual shift into a sort of deeper, deeper level of strangeness, but never so dramatic that you're, uh, you know, disoriented. And I think uh, those are the kinds of fictions and that, that most fascinate me, both in literature and in film. We'll look forward to your next book. We've been speaking with Nathaniel Rich. His new novel is The Mayor's Tongue. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thank you very much for having me here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.